Let's uh, remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And the word of the Lord says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made then distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. Today's text challenges us on a lot of different levels, but ultimately it's a call to examine ourselves to see if we're relating to others in a way that brings glory to God. There's a particular sin discussed here that we don't think or talk about very often, and it's the sin of partiality. Uh, the Greek word that James uses here for partiality means to lean toward one person or another, to play favorites based on some external circumstances that you believe make an individual more desirable or more acceptable than someone else who has maybe less desirable characteristics. It, it's favoritism, playing favorites. Now, Thomas Jefferson said that all men are created equal, right? And, and biblically, there are four spiritual ways that every one of us is equal and the same. One, all people are equally created in God's image. Two, all people are loved by God. They're loved by God in different ways, but that's a sermon for another day. Three, all people are sinners. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And then four, all who confess they are sinners and believe on Christ can be saved from their sinful state. So there are these spiritual unifiers that everyone owns. But there are some natural differences in us that separate us and make us different. People have different cultures and language and ethnicity. People have different economic circumstances. Some are rich and some are poor. People have different talents. People have different intellectual and physical capabilities. People have different backgrounds. They have different interests, different goals and desires. Uh, people have different opportunities and priorities in life. 
But when we separate the Lord's Supper, I always recite 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Uh, even though there's many differences between us, there's one Jesus whose blood binds us together as a family in Christ into one body, the church. But we still are different, individual, unique human beings. And in the time when the book of James was written, the early church struggled with those differences. And like today, those differences caused divisions. Uh, there were Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free people and circumcised and uncircumcised and people with different diets and people who drank wine and people who abstained from alcohol. And in today's text, James addresses the divisions men created between the rich and the poor. What James is going to do today is teach us a Christian perspective on how to deal with this issue, the issue of partiality, showing favoritism. First, he's going to give us a command about partiality. He says in James 2.1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't show partiality. Don't play favorites if you are indeed a Christian. It's hard to imagine that being a standard in the culture we live in where you're defined by your ability to gain the favor of other people with your looks and your popularity and your athletic ability, your money, your clothing, your possessions, uh, your, your ability to gain likes and followers on social media. Uh, we, we discriminate pretty openly and freely, if not in our words, at least in practice. Uh, I was volunteer staff at a large church years ago, and a member of the UGA football coaching staff came to visit one Sunday, and you would have thought there was royalty in the house. Uh, I, I mean, in fact, a few Sundays later, he was invited to speak from the pulpit because the idea was if we had somebody with that level of celebrity in the pulpit, they would draw a crowd, right? And, and it's good to draw a crowd at church. We want people to hear the gospel and be saved. Where the problem arises is when we treat others differently based on their name recognition or what they possess, or how they look, or how they dress. And I have seen this throughout my history amongst Christians. We show partiality towards others based on what they have, or what they look like, or even based on their kids' popularity, or their kids' athletic ability. It's interesting here to me that James says here, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Basically what James is saying is, don't put people whom you think are popular on a pedestal and worship them. There's only one who's worthy to be worshiped. Only one who deserves glory, and that's Jesus. James is telling us that only God is perfect. Only God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly merciful, and full of perfect love. We have a tendency to ascribe glory to others based on their talents or their brand recognition, but only God 
deserves glory. The more we understand God's glory, those attributes that make Him God, the more we'll give glory to God and less to others because of their social status or their popularity. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To make our entire lives available to be used for one purpose and one purpose alone. To give glory to God and not to men. Ray Pritchard wrote this about the glory of God. He said, He is bigger than our biggest words and grander than our grandest conceptions. Because He is God, no words or thoughts of mortal men and women could ever compass His greatness. He is far bigger than we imagine. His presence fills the universe. He is more powerful than we know, wiser than all the wisdom of the wisest men and women. His love is beyond human understanding. His grace has no limits. His holiness is infinite, and His ways are past finding out. He is the one true God. He has no beginning and no end. He created all things, and all things exist by His divine power. He has no peers. No one gives Him advice. No one can fully understand Him. He is perfect in all His perfections. Our best efforts fall so short of His divine reality that we flatter ourselves to think that we understand Him at all. There is no room in Christianity for worshiping anyone except Jesus. Then James goes on and he does this. He shows us an example of partiality in practice. He gives us a real-life scenario of what partiality looks like. He says in verses 2 and 3, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. In James' time, if you were a wealthy Roman citizen, you showed off your prosperity by wearing rings and fine jewelry and what he describes as fine clothing. Seneca was a Roman writer who described a well-off Roman citizen as desiring to have a ring on every knuckle of every finger. And the phrase fine clothing here in the original language meant bright clothing, uh, uh, colorful, shiny clothes designed to catch people's attention. Uh, the language is used one more place in the, in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 10 verse 30, when a Christian named Cornelius encountered an angel and the same words were used to describe the angel's clothing. So these are amazing, fine, fancy clothes this person is wearing. So this obviously very important, well-off individual has walked into the church gathering and people are falling all over themselves to meet them and greet them and say, Oh, have a seat here. It's the best seat in the house. Uh, can I get you anything? Are you comfortable? Uh, let me grab a bulletin for you. Uh, uh, then the poor man walks in. Right after the rich man. The text says that he's wearing shabby clothing. I, I like the way the King James says it. it says he's wearing vile raiments. He, he's poor. He's dirty. He, he's maybe an addict or a homeless person. He looks out of place. 
And the congregation does their best to show him that he's out of place. They say to the rich man, you sit over here in the good seats. And to the poor man, you stand there in the back. Or sit in the aisle next to my feet. That would have been insulting to the poor man to be asked to sit at someone's feet. It would have made them feel inferior and most unwelcome. And then James goes on and he asks four questions about partiality. He asks in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Not only have you engaged in idolatry by showing partiality to the rich man by worshiping him when only God is worthy of glory, you've made yourself into your own version of God by judging the worth of the poor man. You've not only insulted the poor man, but you've also insulted God by discriminating against someone that Christ died for. Then in verse 5, James asks another question. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? That's the second question James asks. There are people out there on the fringes of society that have done things that cause us to want us to keep our distance from them. People with outward characteristics and actions that make us want to judge them and look the other way and not necessarily uh, to welcome them at our church potluck. But these are the exact people that Christ died for. Every one of us are sinners and thieves, guilty and deserving of death and hell. But God, seeing that we were overwhelmed by sin and hopeless, sent His only Son and laid the weight of all punishment for all the sins and filthiness of men who would believe. He, he did it uh, for liars. He did it for Peter who denied Jesus. He, he did it for terrorists, for Paul who hunted and murdered Christians. He, he did it for murderers and adulterers, for David uh, who, who had his best friend killed after he had cheated with his wife. He did it for Noah, the drunk. He did it for Jacob, the liar. He did it for Martin Luther, who made racist comments. He did it for George Whitfield, who owned slaves. He did it for John Wesley, who neglected his wife. The, the history of our faith is a story of one flawed and broken and socially undesirable individual after another, people who were sinners and saints, living contradictions. But the good news is this. Uh, John Calvin, John Calvin, who, by the way, once burned a man alive at the stake, he said, this is our acquittal, that the guilt which exposed us to punishment was transferred to the head of God's Son. Jesus paid the price for the sins of hopeless, helpless rejects, sinners, like you and me. So James is asking, who are we to reject those whom God has chosen and accepted? God takes great delight in taking drug addicts and prostitutes and broken people of all kinds and redeeming them by the blood of Jesus. 
James goes on in verse 6 and says, But have you dishonored, but you have dishonored the poor man? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones that drag you into court? And in verse 7, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? People will steal and kill and fight to have money. And rich people do it all the time. That's the attitude that James is talking about here. Some people will do anything and hurt anyone to have money and possessions and the prestige that goes along with it. And and these are the very ones who set themselves up in a position to judge others, to make themselves as gods, deciding who is worthy and who isn't. And they do this because there's some perceived power and prestige in the dollar. But James reminded us just a few lines back in his letter, in James chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that money won't save you. He wrote, And the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So even the richest man in the world is going to die someday, just like grass in a field, and you can't take it with you. Uh, You can build an empire, the most successful business around, the biggest, nicest house with the most beautiful landscaping and the most breathtaking pool and the most expensive tricked-out vehicles. And one day, you're going to feel a pain in your chest, and the next thing you know, you're face-to-face with God. It's true. And your ATM card will not work in heaven. So we all meet the same end. So James says, don't boast about your wealth. Don't blaspheme God by glorifying the haves and rejecting the have-nots. Instead, think on this from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. James goes on and he tells us that partiality is a sin. He said in verses 8 through 11, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And we're going to talk a little bit about about what James means here. He's saying that partiality, showing favorites, is a sin. And that we should be careful to keep what he refers to as the royal law. And when James is talking about the royal law, he's talking about what Jesus defined as the greatest commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, he said... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To love God and to show that love by giving others the same courtesy and respect and care 
that you want to receive yourself. Uh, Then he goes on to say that if you keep breaking this law, then you've broken the entire law. Every rule in the Bible, if you fail on one point. Uh, Now, we don't care for that concept. We like to categorize and compare and rank our sins so that they don't appear as bad as other people's sins. There are some sins that we think are more, more socially and culturally acceptable than others. Want to get drunk? Well, that's not as bad as smoking meth, is it? Uh, Want to look at porn? Well, at least you didn't cheat on your wife, right? Uh, 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 you want to cheat on your wife? Well, at least you never beat her. Uh, uh, you, you want to gossip hurt somebody's reputation? Well, at least you never killed anybody. That's how we measure our own righteousness. We say, I avoided the big sins, so I'm in good with God. Or, or I've sinned, yeah, but I've done more good things than bad things, so that'll get me into heaven. Or, or I'm better than most people. Or, or, or Casey could say, at least I'm better than Kyle. I, I mean, he's been keeping scores his entire life, thinking that he's going to get a gold star in his crown. It's not going to work, Casey. Kyle's a favorite. If you think that way, you've missed the point. You can't get in good with God for your record of at least us. James says this in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. All right, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Now, I know this makes some of you nervous, but I do this in our kids and youth ministry all the time, and they always get it. What are the Ten Commandments? Somebody just tell me one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. There's one. Don't kill. Don't kill. There's two. Honor your, mother and Honor your father and mother. There's three. Don't steal. Don't steal. Huh? Don't covet. Don't covet uh, things belonging to your neighbor. That's five. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. That's six. Sir? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Seven. Got any more? We did not. That's eight. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's nine. Y'all are almost there. Shall not make idols. You have no idols before me. Now, how many of you would say just by a show of hands, that you've kept all of these commandments. Not, not me. That is for sure. And James is saying here that even if you've only broken one of God's commandments, you've broken them all. Think about it this way. There's a window. And there's, it's one solid pane of glass. And you break a tiny section of the glass. You can't say, well, I just broke part of the window. The entire window's broken. If you break part of it, you've broken it all. And the same principle applies to God's law. You can't say, I never killed anybody, so who cares if I look down my nose at somebody I'm obviously better than? Or if I treat someone that I perceive as special as more worthy than some trashy sinner like Lee Adams. Showing partiality is a serious sin because when you judge someone, you've murdered themselves in your heart and you have sat yourself 
on the throne of God. You're, you've broken not a little piece of the law, but the entire law. So how are we as believers supposed to respond to this? James tells us in the last two verses, verses 12 and 13. He says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The fruit of having Christ in your heart is to follow the royal commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. But to commit the sin of favoritism shows that you don't have Christ in you. And in doing so, you expose yourself to God's judgment. See, I think our big problem as church people, people who believe they have it all together because we have our names on a membership roll or we got baptized when we were kids but we still practice racism and prejudice and partiality towards certain people. I think we forget this standard, those attributes of God we talked about earlier. Uh, Two of them are this, uh, God is holy and God is just. God is morally perfect. He doesn't just sit on a throne and set the standard for perfection by writing commands on stone tablets. He is the standard for perfection. And because he is perfect, you cannot hope for a relationship with him unless you are perfect. God is holy and he is just. Sin deserves to be punished and God will punish sin. And here's the bad news. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is that poor man, that good self-righteous people look down their noses at. If that puts you on the defensive, then I'm going to tell you, you may not be thinking it out loud loud in your head, but but what's in your heart is, well, at least I didn't break the whole window. Just broke a little part. Just think back to Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve, they live in a one-rule world. They're so familiar with God, so intimate with God, that they recognize the sound of his footsteps. Adam and Eve broke their one rule, ate the forbidden fruit. And according to Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And there wasn't even a law then. The Ten Commandments hadn't been set in stone yet. So is God just reactionary and over the top in his judgment? No, he's holy. And his holiness is the standard. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what it takes. And by that standard, I can tell you, every one of us have busted the window wide open. Here's what James is getting at. You aren't holy because there's some big sins you haven't committed or because you consider yourself to be a fine, upstanding citizen or at least better than the person sitting next to you. The real litmus test of whether or not you are a saved individual is seen in how you treat others. Speak and so act 
as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, James writes. Hear what God's word says and do it. Listen to what God's word says and let it take root in your heart and live it out in your life. Uh, That book we've been giving away, Todd Lynn's book uh, about the book of James, you're either walking the walk or just running your mouth. The indicator of whether your faith is real is seen in your obedience to God. Do you follow the law of liberty? Now that seems like an oxymoron. Uh, You're set free to follow a law. But, But think about it this way. Think about it this way. Prior to being saved, the law condemns us. We're sinners who can't follow the law, no matter how hard we try. After we're saved, though, the law doesn't condemn us anymore. Instead, it guides us and cares for us and protects us. A lot of us took driver's ed in high school. When I took it, Coach Leon Fitzpatrick was my teacher. I I think the, the greatest basketball coach in the history of our school. And I loved Coach Fitzpatrick. Uh, As an adult, we shared a lot of lunches and good conversation together. And he could be, if you knew Coach Fitzpatrick, he could be a little quirky sometimes. There's no doubt about it. Uh, The first time he took me out for a driving test, he told me uh, I was going to drive him to the Isla restaurant. He said, we're going to grab a little lunch while we're there. And I was stoked because I love the country cooking at the Isla restaurant. We got there, and I started to get, get out of the car, and he said, no, no, wait right here. And I thought, oh, okay, he's going to bring me some food back out, right? Give me a to-go plate. So he's gone for about 45 minutes, and he came back with nothing, nothing. He had gone inside, sat down and ate while I waited in the car. And I'm like, what? And then, like, driver's head was one hour. We were gone like two and a half hours, right? Uh, we drove to his house. He went inside his house for probably another hour while I sat in the car, and he came back out. And, and, and then we're riding back to Danielsville, back to the high school, and he falls sound asleep, and he is snoring up a storm. And our, our county courthouse, most of you know, is in Danielsville, and there's a roundabout that goes around it. It sits in the middle of the highway. Uh, so uh, I'm going around the roundabout and there's no traffic. There's no traffic anywhere. And all of a sudden coach Fitzpatrick kind of snorts himself awake and he yells at me, you you missed that yield sign. You could have killed us. And I'm looking around and I'm like, there's not any cars coming. I didn't have to yield. And he flunked me on my first drive in driver's ed. Now, it, it made me angry because I only missed one little rule of the road. But in the end, I passed the class and I took the driving test and I got my license. And I was free to drive. Now, when I got my license, I'm free to drive any way I want to, right? I can drive 100 miles an hour on any, anywhere I want to drive. No. I'm free to drive, but there are traffic rules and laws that govern me and guide me. I'm free, but I have a guide to follow, and I obey that guide for the most part. I have gotten tickets before. One of them, I'm pretty sure, was Brittany. It was on a camera, but she says it's me. 
prior, uh, she's mad now. <laughs> prior to faith in Christ, the law of God judged me and it kept me out of relationship with God. But when I put my faith in Christ, he fulfilled all the requirements needed to put me in good standing with the Father. And I was free. I was free from my sin and free from my past and even free from the consequences of the present sins that plague me. And I was free to hold on to God's law as a loving guide designed to protect me and guide me rather than condemn me. The royal law says to love my neighbor as myself. So now I don't have to hate anybody anymore because they're different from me. I don't have to hate people because of past grudges. I'm free. I'm free to love people whether they deserve my love or not. A Christian receives mercy from God that they don't deserve so that they can extend mercy to others. There's a parable Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 about a servant who owes a tremendous debt to his master. Uh, Jesus said it was 10,000 talents of gold. Now, to give you some perspective, for Jesus' time, 10,000 talents of gold would have equaled about 200,000 years of labor for someone who drew the average salary for the time. It was a debt in today's terms of about $48 billion. $48 billion this man owes his master. And the king decides to settle accounts and the servant couldn't pay him back. So the king orders that all the servant has be taken from him and that he and his wife and children be sold as slaves to settle the debt. And the servant begs for mercy and the king has pity on him and he forgives the entire debt. Y'all, I would love to go to the bank and just tell me they're getting rid of my credit card debt are forgiven what we owe on Brittany's car. This is $48 billion just wiped off the books. The king showed this lavish mercy and he forgives the debt the servant could never pay back. It's an incredible happy ending, right? But the story doesn't stop there. Jesus goes on. And this servant who's just been forgiven this massive debt goes out and he turns the corner and he sees someone that owes him money. Jesus said, a hundred denarii. In today's terms, $73. $73. So this guy who has just been forgiven a $48 billion debt attacks the guy who owes him $73 and starts to choke him out and assaults him and has him thrown in jail. And there are witnesses who go and report this to the king who calls his servant back to talk to him. And this is what he said to him in Matthew chapter 18, verses 32 through 35. He said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus said, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How difficult could it have been for a guy who, to forgive a $73 debt literally minutes after having his own $48 billion debt forgiven? How hard could it have been for him to show just a little mercy considering the extreme mercy that the master had just given to him? So here's where we are. Our sin has created in us a debt that we could never repay. There's no amount of moral behavior or avoiding sin or at least eyes that will produce a spiritual resume good enough to put us in good standing with God. We have broken the entire law. The whole window is busted. But God in his love extends mercy to us. And through Jesus' death on the cross, forgives our sins and wipes away the debt that we could never pay back. Uh, we, we sang Rock of Ages earlier, and there's a line in it that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. All of us, regardless of our social status, our race, how much money we have, how nice our clothes are, our level of name recognition, all of us stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. If you have received and experienced the mercy of God, then the natural response of the Christian is to be merciful. I don't know about you, but if I have to choose between God's judgment and God's mercy, I will pick God's mercy every time. James is telling us, don't get wound up over $73 debts. Someone hurt your feelings or someone said something about you or someone is a different race or someone isn't as good as, or as moral as you think you are. If you can't extend mercy, you will experience judgment. And mercy is a far better outcome. God displays the glory of his mercy by saving sinners from their sins through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And if you're here today and you haven't experienced the mercy of God, He offers it freely to you through His Son, Jesus. If you'll just turn from your sins and trust that Jesus has fully paid the debt for your sins on the cross. If you do, and you'll be free from the judgment you deserve. And God will give you mercy.